Okay, we are in the life and teaching of Jesus. For probably about the last five months, I have been going through the four Gospels with you, finding different uh, things to teach about from the life of Christ. The last few weeks, we have been on what's called the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It is that plus the Ten Commandments is the foundation of Western civilization. You will find virtually every dominant message that Jesus brought forth to humanity contained in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount um, uh, is named such because he was on a mountain when he was talking about it. It's uh, literally a collection of, of a, a kingdom eth ethic. It's the values, it's the attitudes that you and I should have as followers of Jesus Christ. It's the way we should think. It is a call to kind of stop the way we've been going and begin to pursue the way of Christ. And it's a pretty neat teaching. If you have been with me the last few weeks, remember we started with what was called the Beatitudes. Beatitudes are simply the way to be happy, according to Jesus. Uh, he talked about our reflection as Christians being salt and light. Now, when I suggested that you might be involved in the political process, that is exactly what salt and light does. How many know we as Christians should be the conscience of the nation? You know, I see one of my roles as, 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 a, as a pastor, as a teacher, is to be a conscience. I try to do anything I can to have a voice in the community, to try to be a moral voice. Well, how many know that's just not for the guy that stands behind the box here? That's for all of us to be salt and light in our society, in the business world, in, in, in the classroom as we're able to do it, uh, wherever we are as Christian people, but we are literally salt and light. Uh, we learned about Christ's relationship to the Old Testament law. And then Jesus began to get a little deeper. You will find that half a dozen times or so, Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, and he would reference some Old Testament teaching. And what he was trying to do is he was trying to separate the Old Testament from the Pharisees and what they had added, diluted, or taken away to it, typically what they had misdirected. And he's trying to clarify. But what Jesus tends to do is he tends to take life further and deeper than the Old Testament. So he's moving more from the rigid external observance of Old Testament law into issues of the heart. And he started with murder. He talked about murder and its relationship to anger. Uh, last week we talked about what? Yeah, divorce and adultery. I mean, how many know the Bible has something to say about it? Not what our culture has to say, but the Bible has something to say. It was a, it was a, I hope it was uh, eye-opening to you. And again, all these messages are on our webpage. You can listen to them, you can watch them, or you can download the notes if you like. But tonight I want to try to talk about three things to you. The first I want to talk about uh, what's called an oath. An oath is a promise. It's a vow. And in this particular context, Jesus is forbidding the oath, the promise, and the vow. So what in the world is he talking about? Then he talks about something called going the second mile. He's talking about uh, rather than getting even, rather than being vindictive or taking vengeance, uh, demanding restitution, he's talking about how we as Christians should respond to people who in many cases take advantage of us. And lastly, he's talking about a portion of the Bible I wish were not there. I wish I could take scissors and cut it out when he says to love my enemies. And uh, so we'll explore that a bit this evening. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at verse 33 as we first uh, begin to uh, understand this idea called the oath. Now, depending on what translation you have, it might be called an oath, it might be called a vow or a promise, but by and large, we're talking about the same thing. So when he says in verse 33, again, you have heard that it, would that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. The New Living Translation says, you must not break your vows. 
But this idea of swearing falsely or bearing false witness, uh, whether you know it or not, is he's literally talking about one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 16, you must not tell lies about your neighbor. Or your King James, again, says you must not bear false witness. Now, um, let's look further. But perform, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. As we look at this passage, these few short verses, we'll see that we're talking about vows or promises made to God, and then we're talking about more generally about keeping our word and oaths or promises, or bottom line, though, that we keep our word. Now, the context here was very interesting. The context was is that the Pharisees had basically made distinctions in... The, the way that you give your word. In other words, you ever had, uh, you ask one of your children or, or you've heard someone say or you've said or are you going to do something? For example, are you coming to the ball game? And your kids ask you, do you promise you're coming? I mean, do you promise, raise your hand, do you swear you're coming? What we're, all, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get beyond the yes and underscore, yes, I'm coming or no, I'm not going. And what Jesus is basically going to say, listen, you just need to keep your word. You need to do what you say, and you don't need to add these extra amplifications to it. I'll explain a bit more about that in a second. Uh, but Jesus, verse 34, I say unto you. In other words, he's, he, and when Jesus said, you've heard it said of old, he's talking about the Old Testament. And when he says, I say unto you, what he is doing is he literally, he's literally declaring himself as authoritative. He is literally claiming divinity because he is, he is not only interpreting, but he is bringing farther the Old Testament law that has guided the, the Israeli people for, for centuries. I say unto you, don't swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. It's referring there to your age. You can't control the aging process. But verse 37, and here's the real teaching, the real gist of it. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. The New Tra Living Translation simply says this. Just say a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Now, let's kind of step into it just a minute. There was something that we cannot relate to, but in their day, the Pharisees basically had added a little bit. They had added some elaborate rules that govern vows. And basically, when you made a vow for the Pharisee, if you were to, one example, for example, the rabbis taught that if you made a vow, I promise by Jerusalem that I'll do such and so, they would say, well, that's, that, that doesn't count. But if you face the city of Jerusalem and said, yes, I promise that I will, you know, buy the camel from you, then that counted. It's almost like you hiring a lawyer today and say, listen, I want to, uh, I want to buy this piece of property, but I want you to make sure, and I'm going to tell the guy I'm going to buy it, but I want you to give me about three or four different ways that I can get out of it if I don't want to buy it. I mean, that's kind of the way business is transacted today, and I'm not saying that's good or bad, but I'm just saying our yes is not yes, and our no is not no. But what Jesus was saying, well, for example, now, Quakers take this verse to mean, and some people that would take it literally means that you aren't to use the word, you aren't to swear about anything. For example, you aren't to go in a courtroom when you used to put your hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. I do. Or now they say, do you swear or affirm? 
Well, why do they say that? Because some people would say, no, the Bible says I'm not to swear. I don't believe that that's what Jesus is trying to forbid in this case. I don't believe if you're in a profession and you take an oath of office when the president puts his hand on the Bible or the Koran or whatever he puts his hand on, but I don't believe that, that, that the Bible is teaching us that, we, that that is an inappropriate thing for us to do. But the, what it's underscoring in this passage is, is your word needs to mean something. When you tell someone, yes, I will, that should be enough. You shouldn't have to underscore it by, you know, raising your right hand and swearing or raising your voice. I told you I would do it. Yeah, but you didn't do it last time. Well, bless God, I'm going to do it this time. I swear I'll do it this time. That's what he's saying. Get rid of all that. Now, he's addressing it in the specific context of the Pharisees who basically, you know, added a lot of religious rules. For example, here you saw when, when uh, they said, uh, don't swear by heaven for it's God's throne. In other words, I swear by heaven that uh, I'm, uh, I'm coming back here in six days and I'll meet you then. Well, you can't control heaven. That does nothing to underscore your seriousness and it should do nothing to underscore the, the value of your words. Bottom line for Christian people and for the followers of Christ, when we say something, we should do it. And I don't know about you, but I, it is particularly important for me for a person to keep their word. And if I'm in relationships with someone and they break their word to me a number of times, guess what? I don't believe them anymore. And I don't have confidence in them. Did you, did you read today that uh, perhaps that the uh, approval of Congress is at its lowest point? Less than 10% of Americans believe Congress is doing a good job. And why is that? You can go on... Lots of web pages. You just look at the Drudge Report today, and they will, you'll hear videos of congressmen that years ago said they'd never do something. In this case, the reconciliation process for health care. They said it was anathema. You shouldn't do it. It's a power grab. And now they're turning around and doing the same thing. A politician stands before you, and they run, they're running for office now. And you listen to whichever particular slant is trying to appeal to you. They're using all the buzzwords and they're saying things that you want to hear because, you know, people have been polled. So they're saying, this is what I'm going to do. And it's amazing when they get to Washington or wherever they get to a state office, they do something differently. How many know that you feel used? And the next time the person looks at you across the television or shakes their finger, they write a speech, you don't believe them. Why is that? It's because their yes is not yes and their no is not no. And that's what Jesus is saying. Bottom line in this, our word should, uh, our, our word should be true. Um, verse 33, when it talks about swearing falsely, uh, you shall not swear falsely. It literally means you should not break your oath or commit perjury. There's a little legal sense in that uh, that's there. Um, let's see. So bottom line, Jesus tells us in this passage, tell the truth and keep your word and do what you say, especially if it's a promise we make to God. Now, he started out the passage in one of the verses where he talked about vows that you make to God. You need to keep that. Now, let me know, listen, obviously we should keep our word to men, but how much more should we keep it to God? And it's interesting the way he closed it because he said anything beyond a simple yes or no is from the evil one. And I don't quite know how the evil one gets in there. But basically, when you have to, you know, underscore and swear and raise your right hand and all that kind of stuff that we even do today, somehow Jesus said the evil one was connected with it, and it's, uh, and it's, not, uh, it's not something that obviously we should do. Ephesians 4.25, Paul picked up the theme and said, you should stop telling lies. Tell each other the truth, because we all belong to each other in the same body. So... Uh, Anyway, that's Jesus teaching on, telling, on basically keeping your word and doing what you're going to say. And look at these next two parts. They're kind of connected. Um, the Spirit-Filled Life Bible is what I'm using kind of for the topics. 
But the first portion in Matthew 5.38 is called going the second mile. And the second portion is loving your enemies. But you're going to see that these are kind of connected here. It's like one flowing passage. Passage. Uh, let's look in Matthew 5, verse 38. You've heard again that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So what's he talking about? He's quoting from Leviticus, from at least four different Old Testament places, Leviticus 24, 19. And 24, 19 says, if a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, in other words, he gets in a fight, he hurts him, as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, in other words, you break somebody's arm, they break yours. An eye for, you put out their eye, they put out your eye. You knock out a tooth, you get one of your teeth knocked out. As you've caused disfiguring of a man, so it shall be done for you. Now, it's interesting here, the Bible is not advocating personal vengeance, nor is it advocating retaliation, which is very key in this. Jesus is not saying retaliation is okay. It, uh, basically, what this Old Testament law did is it prevented people from punishing people beyond what they've done. In other words, you knock out one of my teeth, I'm knocking out two of yours. You break my arm, I'm going to break both your arms. So not only it, it, was it not advocating retaliation, which is kind of the theme here, it was, it was setting some boundaries and consequences of, what, when, uh, of how far justice should go. Now, look at verse 39. But I tell you, don't stand up against an evil person. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you're to teach your children that bullies are to pick on them? I don't think so. There's a little bit of a legal sense here, and we're going we're to try to step into that in just a moment. What we're talking about here is the whole idea of retaliation, we're talking about revenge, we're talking about getting even, and we're talking about justice apart from the law. Okay, so that's kind of, you know, when people do you wrong. I tell you, don't stand up against an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. What does that mean? That means if somebody hits you, you're just supposed to just turn around and take it. And when they slapped you on the cheek, what that was, it was the greatest insult that they could offer you. So basically what Jesus is, Jesus is not talking about physical violence. Jesus is not saying don't defend yourselves. What, what, what did he say? You remember when he told his disciples when he sent them out the second time, if you don't have a sword, what are you supposed to do? Buy a sword. I mean, the modern application of that, I, I, I think concealed weapons are a great idea myself. I don't, I don't think you need to have an idea that you want to go out and shoot somebody. But the Bible does not teach that you're a doormat. It does not teach that you, you know, you know if uh, someone comes in the restaurant like they've done all over America or in the church building and they go to shooting people, you're, you know, oh, shoot me in the arm, turn, you know. That's not what the Bible is teaching in this case. Um, let's, let's, let's keep looking here. Don't stand up against an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. Um... If someone wants to sue you in court and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Well, why would you do that? If someone forces you to go a mile, now we're talking about a Roman soldier. And Roman soldiers under law literally had the right to force you to help them for a little while. It couldn't be an all-day deal, but they could force you to carry their equipment for a mile. And that's kind of the picture here. A Roman soldier come by and says, hey, you carry my backpack, I'm tired. You had to do it. And what Jesus is saying in some amazing way, don't just carry it the mile. And they would have this stuff marked out because they were trying to do the minimum that was required. Jesus said, you carry it two miles. Now, why would he say such extreme things? If a person asks you for something, I would really don't like this verse. If they ask you for something, give it to him. Don't refuse to give to someone who wants to borrow from you. I don't know how to explain that one. It just says what it says. Uh, 
But let's kind of look here. You see, Jesus, again, kind of big picture now. We started out talking about don't get revenge. He's, 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 he's this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of thing. Um, he forbids revenge. He's insisting on the positive good in the face of evil. And maybe you can just let that little simple phrase. He's insisting that we do good instead of returning evil for evil. Uh, whether it's a personal insult some legal contention, forced labor, or some request for gifts. Um, Leviticus 19, verse 17, it said, Don't nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you'll not be held guilty for their sin. Don't seek revenge and don't bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. So here's what I want you to see in this. Somewhere what Jesus is calling us to do is he's calling us to love someone that does us wrong now the next half a dozen verses or so is it really gets into this but they're kind of, they're, they're to kind of together here now why did Jesus call us to live this way why would Jesus to tell you to do something as you know as difficult as somebody insults you you turn the other cheek that's not what I want to do what do you want to do yeah slap them back you want to defend yourself you know, and I don't mean physically now. I'm talking about you want to stand it. You want everyone to know that you're right. It amazes me what people put on Facebook. It just amazes me about how people try to vindicate and prove themselves right. And this is kind of what we're talking about. Uh, why did Jesus call us to live this way? Now, in verse 30, 45, he gives us a key insight. He said, if you do these things, you'll be true children of your Father in heaven. So it's almost like the love of God is so compelling that it goes through the craziness of people. It's like God is calling us to love people with the same extravagant love that He has for us. It's like when we do stupid things, when we make huge mistakes, and we allow ourselves to drift from God's standards, we come back to God, what do we find? We find mercy. And what, you know, it's like people in jail, they call it jailhouse religion sometimes, but somehow a person gets so deep down in their life but guess what? When they find God, God accepts them the way they are. And that's kind of what God is saying to, to us in this passage is we're supposed to love people whether they're slapping us, whether they're insulting us, whether they're taking from us, whether they're suing us, whatever they're doing. Somehow, even in a court of law, when you are in a, whether it's a divorce proceeding or, or in some litigation, they're trying to take money from you. It doesn't mean you just give them all your money, but somehow in that, you're, they're supposed to see Christ in you. Somehow that opportunity, even as horrible as it is, should be a door for the grace of God to come through. Now, again, Mark 12, 29, think about when Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment in all the Bible, what did he say? You are to love the Lord, yeah, love the Lord with all your heart. What was the second, though? Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the thing that's developed in these maybe eight or ten verses here. The second greatest commandment of all is that we're to love our neighbor and ourselves. Now, listen to what... Excuse me, Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, Paul picks up the same thing. If someone does wrong to you, don't pay him back by doing wrong to him. In just a minute, we're going to read that we're supposed to pray for those who despitefully use us. We're supposed to bless them and not curse them. Paul said it again here. If they do wrong, don't pay him back by doing wrong to him. And, and this, this, this does not say that Christians shouldn't be involved in civil litigation. In other words, or criminal in particular. Corinthian tells us that we're not to take a brother or sister to court. That we're to even bear the loss rather than sue another Christian in court. Now, why would that be? That's a dumb thing. 
it seems like. But it's almost like the value of the kingdom has to be greater than anything else. And it's a difference between civil and criminal laws and courts. But basically in all this, Jesus is trying to tell us to take the low road. He's trying to tell us, but not just, not to be a doormat, but to look for an opportunity to be a vehicle for the grace of God to come through. Listen to what Paul says. Try to do what everyone thinks is right. Do your best to live in peace with everyone. Now verse 19, if it's on the screen. My friends, don't try to punish others when they wrong you. Don't punish others when they wrong you, but you wait for God to punish them with His anger. For it's written, God says, I'll punish those who do wrong, I'll repay. But you should do this. If your enemy's hungry, no. I don't think Sun Tzu in his Art of War would say that. I've not read his book, but when I hear it talked about in movies, it's like when your enemy's down, what do you do? You kick them. And you step on them. And you make sure they don't get up again. You make sure they know who's boss. You ever been around a dog who's, who's, been, who's been hit and beaten? What does a dog do? All you have to do is raise your hand. What does he do? So that's what many people are trained in life. That's the, what you're to do with other people. You want that other person to, to do that whenever they're around you because you're superior. And the Bible says we as Christians are supposed to do just the opposite. God will take care of the punishment. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this will put burning coals on his head. So you now you say, finally, he's even going to burn all the hair off his head. No, that's not what it's saying. That's talking about it, it, it becomes a door of grace. It becomes these coals are like coals of conviction. Where, the, where a person, listen, when a person knows that they've done wrong and you're not stupid by doing good to them, but you do it very deliberately, eyeball to eyeball, you're giving them grace when they deserve justice. You're giving them something that they don't deserve. It becomes a door of God's grace. Why do you think the Bible tells uh, in the New Testament where it talks about uh, wives that are living with an unbeliever? Peter talks about uh, uh, that your husband won't be won by your preaching but he'll be won by your words. It's like there's actions that we can take that become doors of grace for the kingdom message to come across to a person. Don't let evil defeat you, but defeat evil by doing good. Now, I am just like you. When somebody insults me, when they say lies about me, the first thing I want to do is defend myself. And I try to keep my text messenger in my pocket or put it on the shelf until I have been able to settle down a little bit, so I'm not responding out of my emotions, but I'm responding out of what I hope is a spirit-led response. Okay? So that's kind of the background for what Jesus is saying there. Now let's go back to, to some of these verses we looked at. Look at verse 39. Again, this blow on the cheek, if they slap you on the right cheek, you're to turn the other one. It was the most grievous insult that was possible in the ancient world. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's the worst thing you could call someone that's trying to put you down. Now, when the Bible says that you're not to resist them, it is not referring to physical resistance, but it's talking about don't doing, not doing something in return. And it even has, it's kind of the tit for tat. You hurt me, I'm hurting you back. But it even has a little legal under, uh, uh, underscore there in a legal context about not trying to get the judge to help you get revenge. Because sometimes when we want to punish someone, we get us a lawyer, come on, and then they got to get a lawyer, and then we get a judge, and we're going to hurt you that way. But we're going to make sure I'll do everything in my power to hurt you. And one of the saddest things you can see when two people that were in love at one time and are in a divorce are doing that same very thing, and they're doing it out of their pain. Now, in verse 40, when it says that someone takes your cloak, or it might call your tunic, let them have your, 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 your cloak or your coat also. Basically, this was the poorest of the poor. It's imagine if you had a shirt on 
And, 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 and the Bible said, if they take your shirt, give them your coat as well. Now, it was forbidden in Jewish law that in, in a court of law, you couldn't take a man's coat. Because for a poor person, that coat served as a blanket at night. And that's all they had to keep themselves warm. But what Jesus, again, is doing, it's almost in this exaggerated language, is he's saying, listen, if somebody does you dirty, you are looking for the opportunity to do good to them. Now, again, you're not a doormat, and I, can't, I don't know how to tell you where to always draw the line. A lot of situations you get in, you really have to seek the Lord about how you need to respond to things. But what Jesus is saying really in all of this is we're looking for ways to show the love of God to people to gain their attention so they might come to Christ. If a Roman soldier is forcing you to do something, go a little bit more and do a little bit extra. Uh, I mean, no, that's just that's the way to live. It's not just the minimum to get by. I guarantee if you own a business and, and you're going to have to downsize if, if you're looking at all your employees and you've got one or two people that are consistently there early, they'll stay late without begging for extra money. They, Listen, don't worry about it. I'll just do it. I'll take care of it. If you've got someone being responsible to lock the building, if they're riding down the road at night and they see the lights are left on and they pull in and they make sure the lights get turned off, guess what? You're going to keep that person around. Why? Because they did a little bit extra. And that's the same thing the Lord is telling us as Christian people is we're doing these things not for money, not for gain, not to get to something in return, but we're doing it as opportunities of grace. It's like this, uh, this example of non-resistance and loving service to our oppressor. What were slaves told to do in the New Testament in Paul's writings? Yeah, obey your masters, and basically you're supposed to do a better job, especially if they're a Christian because they're your brother in Christ. It's almost like the attention is totally off me and, and, it, and, it's, and it's on to them. Uh, and I really don't know what to say about verse 42, that when, when, someone asked, when Jesus said, uh, if, they, uh, uh, if they ask you for something, give it to them. Uh, don't refuse to give it to someone who wants to borrow from you. So I think that probably applies to uh, uh, maybe Brother Fred there, and that applies to several other people, but certainly not to me, okay? So don't ask to, to borrow from me. But that's what he said. I, I really don't know what to say about that other than Jesus said what he said. Uh, <laughs> when somebody asks you for something, that uh, there you go. Um, Matthew 5, look at verse 43. Now, he kind of set that up. Is here when he talks about these are ways that we love our enemies. And it's like loving people that don't deserve it. See, I, I, I have been raised in a world that basically taught me I get what I deserve and I give people what they deserve. But in God's economy, we don't give people what they deserve. God has given us what we don't deserve, which is the mercy of God. Look at verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, you shall love your neighbor, again referring to the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, 18. But guess what? There's not a scripture that says hate your enemy. The Pharisees has, had added that. Now, you can find in the Scripture, particularly David's writings in the Psalm, where David is saying, listen, go after them, God. They, they've, been, they've been on my case tough and hard. I want you to go after them. But there's nowhere in the Old Testament that justifies hatred. Hatred is resisted in the New Testament as well as the Old. And this is interesting because in Jesus' audience, when he said, you've heard it said, it's not just what the Bible said in the Old Testament, but it's what religious people had added to it and had interpreted. So they were justifying hatred. Um, uh, the, Greek, in the, uh, the Greeks, uh, I read about a 4th century uh, uh, Athenian orator today, and he basically said, make sure you hurt your enemies more than they hurt you. 
So the Pharisees had kind of gone to that route. Somebody hurt you, you hurt them back double hard. It's kind of like the mafia mentality there. You know, you know, you pull your gun on me, you shoot me in the leg, I'm going to kill you. Well, that's not the Jesus way. Look at what Jesus said in verse 44. But I say to you, and here again, Jesus always brings it to a higher level. See, whether it's the act of adultery to the matter of the heart. Murder to the attitudes of anger in the heart. But I say to you, love your enemies. And it gets really bad from there. That's a joke. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, how many in this room really like, want people to like you? Let me see your hand. Okay, how many sadistic people like to be hated? Let me see your hands. Raise your hand. No. Is it masochist or sadist? Whatever. Get them confused there. Anyway. No, everybody wants people to like them. And what Jesus is saying, when someone doesn't like you, you're supposed to like them anyway. And my tendency is, when I get in the middle of this, I want to withdraw. I'm not ready to go and hit you in the face. My personality type is to kind of withdraw and punish you in a different way. But this is what Jesus said. He said, you're to bless those who curse you. And you know, I find in my life, that's the way I know if I've forgiven somebody. It's not enough for me to begrudgingly say the words, I forgive you. But it's when I can begin to pray for that person and genuinely ask God to bless them. It's almost like I get a little glimpse of God's compassion for that person that's acted in such a hateful, harmful way. And I'm praying for them. It's like I'm praying beyond the realm of justice. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who use you and persecute you. Why would you do that? I mean, that sounds almost like insanity. Verse 45 is the answer. So you may be sons of your Father in heaven. God makes His sun rise on evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. It's like you're imitating God when you treat people with kindness and mercy that don't deserve it. And the hope is that it becomes a door of grace to get their attention that turns them to Christ. You know, and I don't care if you're in a courtroom with lawyers or if you're, you know, in a classroom with other students or if you're in a church setting. I mean, Christians can be some of the meanest people on the planet. I, I, I mean, we have a way of, of, of punishing people. Uh, you become the son, of, you, you, you imitate God when you bless those who curse you. What did Jesus do when he was on the cross? Father, what? Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. What did Stephen do when he was being stoned early in the book of Acts? Exact same thing, forgive them. And I find it somewhat um, uh, illuminating that Saul of Tarsus was standing by when Stephen was stoned. And when Stephen said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Saul, up to that point, was a religious man that had lived by all the externals of the religious tradition. But he saw the reality of God in the response of Stephen. And I contend to you, it was that, that when he was knocked from his horse by the blinding light, that he said, Who are you, Lord? It was as if God used that to bring revelation and light to him. Let's keep reading. Um, verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even tax collectors do the same. Now, again, tax collectors were some of the worst of the Jewish society. They were, they were the people who would not only take what was required, but they would get as much as they can. They would steal literally from their friends. Uh, if you, what reward have you do? Not even tax collectors do the same. If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors do the same thing. Therefore, you shall be, what's the word? Perfect, 
just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, perfect does not mean that you are flawless uh, and never make a mistake. But what it simply means, instead of following the example of the sinner who just loves those who love them, we're to be like the Father who loves people who does not love us. So like this word perfect, it means complete. It mean, maybe the best word to illustrate is it means mature. Real maturity is to be able to bless your enemy. Real maturity is to be able to pray for those who despitefully use you. Real maturity is to be able to, rather than giving people what they deserve, to give them mercy. Uh, and that's what he's looking for. It means we've become whole, we've become perfect. It's the picture of Christ on the cross beaten by humanity. The sins that he was on the cross for was the very people that had committed around him and he didn't even say, Father, wipe them out. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's like somehow God had so worked in him that he had risen above it. And that's what the Bible depicts as maturity, not just getting even and not keeping what, what belongs to me. All this is a picture of what Jesus calls real discipleship. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. When the Bible tells us in verse 43 that we shall love our neighbor. It means we're to be concerned for their welfare. 1 Corinthians 13, it, it, it separates the emotion of love from the actions of love. See, when, when you know, you're young in love, whether you're, you know, 15 or 50, but when you love someone, you're just filled almost with this giddy feeling. You know, I just, I just can't get enough of being around you and I want to talk to you and I just feel so in love. But sooner or later, some of those feelings dissipate a bit and then real love translates into the actions and the way you treat a person. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 tells us what love is. Love is patient and kind. It's not a feeling, it's an action. Love is not jealous. It's not boastful or proud. And love is not rude. Love does not demand its own way. Anybody struggle with selfishness? Now, I'm married to a saint. She doesn't have many selfish bones in her body. She may have one or two, and they don't come out very often. I got a lot. But real love is not to demand its own way. Love is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Do, do, do you kind of find it hard to let go of things you kind of remember? Do you remember someone that you loaned money to 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago? And you're just waiting for the day for them to get some money. And you're going to... And I'm not telling you that that's wrong to get your money back. But what I'm simply saying, sometimes that whole approach is missing something. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice. But it rejoices whenever truth wins out. And listen to this, verse 7. Love never gives up. You know, it's pretty hard to reach somebody that doesn't want to be reached. But you can still love someone. Listen, if they won't talk to me about God, I can talk to God about them. Now, you can't do that with everybody. Life's pretty busy. But, but there's times when people that are in your world that you've chosen to love. and See, love is a choice. It's more than just a feeling. But it's a challenging thing to do to never give up. I, I quite honestly would like to give up on some people. I just would. Um, love never loses faith. It's always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. How is it? It, it, it just it amazes me when I see, uh, particularly its mothers, walk a path with a wayward child, either a path in drugs, a path in prison, but it's like no matter what that child has done, I still love you. 
I mean, I, I, I know mothers whose sons have stolen wedding rings from their husband who's died and hawked them to buy money for drugs, but they still love them. They don't want to enable them, but they still love them. Now, see, that's, that's, that's the nature of what Jesus is talking about, but not just for your son or daughter. He's talking about for your enemies. And I want to tell you, that's a little bit beyond me. But that's what Jesus is saying real maturity is all about. It's what the Father does. It's how to be perfect as He's perfect in heaven. So that's a little bit deeper than the Pharisees were, were kind of going there. You know, it's when Jesus said, you've heard it said, let me, let me tell you what it really means. And this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. And I find in my life, when I'm in a relationship where there's some contention, the Holy Spirit will typically speak to me if I can get past the emotion of it. Usually my emotions are the first thing that I'm confronted with when there's conflict with a friend or an enemy. But when I can get past the initial emotion and not, you know, make, you know, final actions in an emotional state, because how I many know you can't take back a word? I've thought about taking back a text message, and you can't do it. When you hit send, I don't know how to take You can throw the phone again, but it, it, it's gone. And you can never take it back. And they'll even send it to somebody else to show you what you said. They'll copy and paste it, and, you know, other people know exactly what you said. There's some things you just can't take back. But if I can hold that response past the emotion stage, I find virtually all the time the Holy Spirit will speak to me. And it's usually not what I want to do because it's usually typically... It, it, it. Now, when for a child, it may be saying no. When fear may want you to say yes. In other words, if I tell them they cannot live in this house living the way they're living, if I tell them I am not giving you any more money if, as long as you're in this sinful relationship and you're scared you'll never see them again, and the Holy Spirit wants you to do that. I mean, love sometimes holds a firm boundary. Love is not just permissive in giving. Sometimes love is a strong boundary. But I find that the Holy Spirit will always, will always give me that nudge if I'll just do what He says. So that's what Jesus had to say just a little bit tonight about an oath or a promise or a vow. And again, the gist of that was is that in their day, there was all sorts of rules, you know, between the promise and the really promise and the really, really, really promise. Jesus basically said, listen, just do what you say and keep your word. It's not necessary. You do what you say, be a person of your word, especially to God, but also to other people. And then he's talking about the second part. Don't be vindictive. Don't be seeking revenge. We're different. You know, we're, we're not going to give them what they deserve. We're going to go the second mile. We're willing to turn the other cheek. And Pastor Joe is willing to give if you ask of him. So you ask of him and he'll give it to you. If you ask him to borrow, he'll take care of you. But then that last part about loving your neighbor and praying for those who despitefully use you, blessing them and not cursing them. Why? Because it allows us to imitate the Father in heaven. It allows us to be a door of grace so they might know the very God that we know. And how many know their soul is worth more than a couple bucks? Well, Lord, we pray that your word, anything that I said was true today, that it would linger with us. Anything that was my own opinion, let it just evaporate. But I, I just pray that the Spirit of God would help us to walk at this higher level as Jesus is calling his followers in the Sermon on the Mount. Bless all my friends tonight. And would you just cause your face to shine on us? Would you do us good all our days? Would you care for us? Would you be our, our defender? Would you vindicate us when we need to be vindicated? Would you, Lord, take care of the whole revenge thing? Let us concentrate on loving and caring and, 
and uh, being very sensitive to the Holy Spirit and do what he might have us to do. Please, Lord, would you please convict us if we fail to keep our word. Don't even let a little lie slip away from us, even if it's convenient. Let us be people of the truth and not the lie. And, Lord, let us genuinely walk in love towards all men. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name.